You know, when some people think about Christians, especially those early followers of Jesus on that first Resurrection Sunday, a lot of them just think about them like 90s hip-hop fans. You know, they, they, really, they really liked Tupac Shakur, and he died tragically, and people couldn't really deal with it. They, they wouldn't accept it, and so they just sort of created this myth, this story, this sort of explanation that, no, Tupac is alive, and, and rumors start spreading, and, and people start sharing. And if you don't know what I mean by Tupac Shakur, just think the same thing but Elvis Presley, okay? So a few decades earlier, you know, Elvis died. Obviously, a lot of people were, were into Elvis and, and had a hard time dealing with the fact that the king was dead. And so there were all of these sightings and these claims that Elvis lived. But I wonder if this whole situation with Jesus' resurrection from the dead is, if we have it all backwards, if it's not really like Tupac and it's not really like Elvis, and listen, if, if you don't know who Tupac is, stop Googling it right now. Just ask someone kind of born in the 80s. They'll, they'll be able to tell you they, were, they loved hip-hop in the 90s. I wonder if we have this whole thing backwards. I wonder if it's more like Paul McCartney. And you're like, why would it be more like Paul McCartney? Paul McCartney's alive. Exactly. You see, at the height of Beatlemania, in 1966, a rumor started to spread. This was when, like, Lennon was starting to think about leaving the band, and there was rumors that the Beatles were breaking up. And there was a rumor being spread that Paul McCartney had actually died. And then Sgt. Pepper's came out, this famous, iconic uh, album cover, and, but the rumor started to spread about what was on the back of the cover. You have the five four, and, and on the back of the cover, you have a George and, and John and Ringo facing forward, but Paul, or Paul's replacement, has his back turned. And the theory went that Paul's dead. And he was there for the original photo shoot, but when they wanted to shoot the, the, the band for the back cover, they just got someone to stand in for him. And then the theory went on that they went and found someone who looked like Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney, was the same height as Paul McCartney, talked like Paul McCartney, could play bass like Paul McCartney, and sang exactly like Paul McCartney to fool everyone, including his wife, because he fathered children during this time into thinking that Paul McCartney, although he was alive, was actually dead. The theory continued to progress with the, with the release of the Magical Mystery Tour. This came out in the same year. You've got three Beatles dressed in costumes, wearing white, and then one mysterious Beatle dressed as a walrus, wearing black, a symbol of death. Two years later, Abbey Road came out. I'm not making this up. These were legitimate theories that, that well, you've got all of the Beatles there, Paul McCartney, look, he's barefoot. That means something. <laughs> and Paul McCartney's left-handed, and yet he's holding the cigarette with his right hand. And then in the background, there's a Volkswagen Beetle, get it? See what they're doing there, the Beatles, and there's a Beetle. The, the license plate said LMW. Linda was Paul's wife, LMW, Linda McCartney Weeps. 
They started thinking about songs, you know, like John Lennon's great song, A Day in the Life, and it talks about a man who dies in the car. They started playing Beatles records backwards, saying things like, Paul is the walrus, he's the, he's the dead one in the black costume. And again, I wonder if we have this whole Jesus resurrection thing backwards. I think oftentimes when we think about the resurrection, we think that, that this is someone who is dead and everyone's trying to find ways to prove that he's alive. But I wonder if it's the other way around. That Jesus is alive. And a lot of people are trying to find reasons to explain why he's dead. It's less like Tupac and Elvis. It's a lot like Paul McCartney. So today we're going to put ourselves in the shoes of the, the women who first went looking for Jesus. And they, they went to the tomb. Seems like a reasonable place. If, if you want to look for a historical figure who lived 2,000 years ago, if you want to find them, you're going to find them in a tomb. But here's the truth about Jesus. If you're looking for Jesus, you won't find him in a tomb. And so what I want to encourage you today is to step into the shoes of these women who discovered the empty tomb. And uh, here, here's the first thing that I want to encourage you to do as we follow in their footsteps. The first one is this, to listen to the testimony. To listen to the testimony. They went to the tomb expecting to find dead Jesus. Many people on earth think that Jesus is dead, but truth be told, he's alive. We're told in, in chapter 28, verse 1, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn, the first day of the week, that's Sunday, that's why Christians meet on Sunday to worship, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Verse 6, he is not here. He has risen. The, the women had to listen to the testimony. First off, they had to listen to the testimony of the angel. An angel is a messenger from God. And this angel is the one who rolled the stone away, who brought the earthquake, who scared the guards half to death. And he has a message for them. He has a testimony to share. The, the, the truth is that Jesus is not in the tomb. He is not here. He has risen. If you're looking for Jesus, you're not going to find him in a tomb. But then the angel's testimony points to someone else's testimony. Keep reading in your Bibles. It says, he has, he has risen as he said. So there's not only the angel's testimony, there's also Jesus' testimony. As great as Jesus was to be around, he's always healing people and feeding people. Jesus also sort of had this side of him where he was, he was always talking about death and dying. In fact, at sort of one of the high points of Jesus' relationship with the disciples, when, when Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, you're the, you're, the, you're, you're the Holy One of God. The next thing that Jesus said, the next thing that came out of Jesus' mouth in Matthew 16 is Jesus began to show his disciples that he most, must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He predicted it well in advance. 
Then later in Matthew 17, another high point when Jesus on the mountain with three of his disciples showed his glory that he truly was God. And Moses and Elijah make cameo appearances, this this incredible event. Then Jesus heals this, this little boy who was possessed by a demon. And then Jesus says again, the son of man, that's how Jesus talked about himself, is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. He, he was raised as he said. And then after making their way to Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 20, the same thing. Jesus said to them, see, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. That's very specific. And he will be raised on the third day. There's Jesus' testimony. Jesus, even a few verses later, explained why he was going to die. He said in Matthew 20, the same chapter, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus predicted that he would die, but he also predicted why he was going to die. His death was going to be a ransom payment. You know, you pay a ransom to set someone free who's been captured, set someone free who's who's imprisoned. And you pay the amount so that that person can be set free. Jesus said that his death was like a ransom payment. You see, because here's the thing. What was true then is also true in our culture today. Our world promises that if you do whatever you want, say whatever you want, sleep with whatever you want, become however you want, that that is true freedom. That's true autonomy. But those of us who have been down all of those roads know that to do whatever you want and say whatever you want and become whatever you want and sleep with whoever you want, that actually doesn't lead to freedom. That actually leads to a whole other form of slavery. A whole other form of imprisonment. That's what the Bible calls sin. The Bible says that we are slaves to sin. And Jesus... The whole purpose of his death was to set us free from it. To be free from thinking that if I just get what I want, then I'll be happy. Because you'll never be happy when you get what you want. Look at all these, all these celebrities that we want to we wanna be like them. They're all miserable. Why would we want to be like these miserable people? It's slavery. Jesus came to set us free from that. And then on the very night... When Jesus was betrayed by Judas, this is, what, this is what he said in Matthew chapter 26. He said, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. So there's the testimony of the angel that points you to the testimony of Jesus. But then the testimony of Jesus points us to another testimony, that which was written about him. And that, that's, the, that's the third testimony, the testimony of the Old Testament. That hundreds of years, in some cases thousands of years before Jesus even walked on the earth, there's all of these specific prophecies about his death. We looked at Psalm 22 on Good Friday about this psalm talking about hands and feet being pierced. Listen to this prophecy written 700 years before Jesus came to the earth. It says that he was pierced. Again, there's that phrase pierced. Crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin or the rebellion of us all. That as Jesus was dying, it was prophesied that 
our iniquities, our transgression, our sin was going to be put on him. Then it, it, the, the, the prophecy goes on to say his soul makes an offering for guilt. An offering. If you were to make an offering at the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the offering didn't go running away. <laughs> the offering was slaughtered. The offering was killed. Out of his soul, he made an offering. Jesus was to give his life. He was to die. So the prophecy pictures death. But then, like the next verse, it says he shall prolong his days. He's dead, but he's going he's gonna to live. And then it says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. You see, Jesus lived a life that none of us could live in perfect righteousness. He never sinned, he never lied, he never cheated, he never stole. But he went to, when he went to the cross, all of our iniquity was laid on him. And then this exchange happened, that our sin went to Jesus, and that his righteousness is counted to those who believe in him. That's the testimony of the Old Testament. And then lastly, the testimony of Jesus' followers. The testimony of Jesus' followers. We're reading the testimony of Jesus' followers right now. The women, as it's being recorded by Matthew, who was a tax collector, who was far from God, who was hated by his people, he was ostracized. All he cared about was money and himself, and God dramatically changed his life when he met Jesus. So we have the testimony of Matthew, the testimony of the women. We have the testimony of the people that invited you to church today. That friend or that neighbor who's always bugging you, come to church, come to church. I encourage you this afternoon, sit down with them for lunch, hear their testimony, hear their story about how when their life intersected with the risen, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, how everything changed. So as we follow the footsteps of the women, just, just begin by listening to the testimony. There's four testimonies that you can listen to, the angel, Jesus, the Old Testament, and followers of Jesus. But, but, then, but also, notice what the angel says. He says in verse 6, come, see the place where he lay. Here's the second thing that we can do. We can examine the evidence. The angel doesn't say, just take my word for it. Nothing to see here. Move along, move along. Pay no attention to, to what is happening in the cave. No, he says, go, go look. See, explore the evidence. You don't believe what I say? I'm an angel. That's kind of a big deal. But anyway, if you don't believe me, just look. Look at the empty tomb. This is the tomb where dead Jesus is supposed to be. If you're looking for Jesus, you're not going to find him in a tomb. Explore the evidence. So many of us in our world today, we're, just, we're in such a hurry to make verdicts without actually looking at any kind of evidence. We're just so quick to retweet something that someone said in like 140 characters or less, and we haven't even really thought. Is this true? Is this right? Why am I so outraged? Have I even looked at the evidence? And many people have rejected the, the very idea that God exists because they say they believe in science. What does that even mean? Science doesn't disprove the existence of God. The existence of God is a given. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, the existence of God is a given. You walk into a junkyard and you see a metallic blue Corvette Stingray in the junkyard, your mind doesn't immediately think, I know what happened here. Over millions of years, the scrap parts of the junkyard slowly formed together. And it started off as a, as a moped. And then it became, you know, a Lada. And, and, and then slowly over millions and millions of more years, it, it became a Corvette Stingray. 
That's not what we think. When we see the complexity and the beauty of Chevrolet's highest achievement, <laughs> we don't think that happened by accident. We immediately, we see evidence of design. You don't need, you don't need evidence to prove the existence of God. Look, look, look at the world around you. Explore the evidence. Explore the evidence about Jesus. Read the, the beginning, the, the prequel to this story, Matthew chapter 1, verse 27. Read about the life of Jesus. Explore the evidence. Then he tells them in verse 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he was risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they... they they are sent on a mission to go and tell the other disciples. But on the way, they're interrupted. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. There's these mixed emotions like, I want this to, to be true, but can it actually be true? I saw the evidence. I heard from the angel. I still can't believe it, but I'm exploring. I'm taking the steps. Verse 8, or sorry, verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. I love that. Jesus is just like, Hey! <laughs> It's just this common sort of way of saying, what's up? Hello. How you doing? Didn't expect to see me here. Then it says, and they came up and they took hold of his feet. He's not a ghost. They took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. He's not a ghost. He's a man, but they worshipped him. He's, he's not merely a man. See, here's the one, of the one of the biggest misunderstandings about Jesus. Yes, Jesus was a man, but he was fully man and fully God. And people with all kinds of academic degrees and who write books and that sort of thing say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, if Jesus was a good Jewish young man, he would have known the Ten Commandments. And some of us are vaguely familiar with the Ten Commandments or something in there about not committing murder or, or the first command is to worship no one but God. So if Jesus were just a man and just like a good moral teacher, you know, like a hip, like mystical rabbi kind of guy, he wouldn't allow people to worship him. But he does. And if you examine the evidence, if you look at the life of Jesus, he was continually claiming to be God. He, he did things only God's allowed to do. Like he told the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. He walked on water. He said his word will never pass away, just like the word of his... He called God his father. I mean, if Jesus wasn't God, this would have been a great time to be like, Mary, that Mary, listen, both of you, that's really kind of you, but I'm just a moral teacher. Don't worship me. But Jesus received worship. In fact, it was Jesus' claim to be God. That's the whole reason he went on the cross in the first place. So, he, he, here's the third thing I want you to do. So, it, Hear the testimony, examine the evidence, and then thirdly, see the Savior. See Jesus for who he truly is. And Jesus' claim to be God is what ended up putting him on the cross. Rewind to Matthew chapter 26, and at, while Jesus is on trial, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, some people 
who don't understand the Bible, they say, ah, that's it. That's it right there, right there. See, the high priest asked him if he was the son of God. And then now Jesus, he refers to himself as the son of man. So Jesus is saying he's not God. He's only the son of man. But you don't understand the Bible. Because the son of man read in its proper context comes from an Old Testament book. The book of Daniel. Where this where this divine being who looks like a son of man, who was called the son of man, is given what Jesus describes here, given the right to sit at God's right hand and has power and is coming on the clouds of heaven. Having power and coming on the clouds of heaven is something that is only attributed to God. In Daniel 7, the son of man is, is one with God. So when Jesus said, Hey, when he was asked, are you the son of God? And then he responded by saying, you will see the son of man coming in clouds. He wasn't saying I'm only a man. He was claiming to be God. And you don't need to read the book of Daniel to understand this. You just need to keep reading Matthew. Look at the response. The high priest tore his robes and said, he's only a man. No, that's not what he said. He tore his robes and said he's committed blasphemy. What further witness do you need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What's your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Again, if Jesus were not God, this would have been a great time for him to clarify things. He's like, wow, that escalated quickly. No, 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 no. No, I'm only a man. But he didn't. Because he knew he was God. So it... Listen to the testimony, examine the evidence, see the Savior. Then he tells them in verse 10, he says, don't be afraid. And he says, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. I love that part. He's talking about the disciples. Now, if you know the story, like all of his disciples like took off on him. And while Peter's on trial, I'm sorry, while Jesus is on trial, Peter claims that he's never known Jesus. He starts calling down curses on himself, saying that he never knew Jesus. Only a matter of hours after he promised that he would die for Jesus. I mean, if I were Jesus, I would be like, go tell those scrubs that if, if if they're ready to pick up their or tie up their bootstraps and get themselves together, then they can meet me in Galilee and I'll see. No, he says, tell my brothers. Because the fear and the selfishness and the duplicity of his disciples, those were part of the iniquities that were laid on Jesus. And you might be here today and you're like, listen, I just got some religious people. The guy's wearing a collared shirt. I haven't worn a collared shirt in 30 years. And, and you don't know how, how far I've wandered or you don't know how long it's been. You don't know the things that I've done. Jesus is here today saying, listen, I'm, I'm ready to welcome you as a brother. God is my father. I want to see you adopted into my family as a brother or as a sister. It's, it, it's not too late and you haven't wandered too far. And wearing a collared shirt does not make you closer to God. I don't know why I said that. (laughs) Then we come to verse 11 where the the soldiers go and tell what happened to the 
religious leaders. Verse 11 says, while they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. They they didn't want it to be true because they knew what it would mean for them and the changes they would have to make in their lives if it were true. And so they came up with this alternative explanation. But again, I want to encourage us, let's examine the evidence. Maybe you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. And that's fine. I just got to ask you, what is your explanation for all that happened? I have a bachelor's degree in history. I was planning on being a history teacher. And so I I know from a historian's uh, perspective, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, like every historian on planet Earth agrees on two historical facts. One, that Jesus of Nazareth was publicly crucified. Every historian agrees on that. It's undeniable. It's a historical fact. Secondly, historians all agree that his closest followers, just a few days later, claimed that he rose from the dead. All historians agree on that. There's no question about those facts. It's the third fact that's troubling. The third historical fact is that that small group of followers, within 50 days, had developed a movement of thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem. And that even though they were being imprisoned, It continued to spread like wildfire across the known world. And even though the religious leaders did everything that they could do to try to squash it, and even though for three centuries the Roman Empire did everything they could to disprove and destroy this truth that Jesus had risen from the dead, they refused to give in. And all of those original disciples, they were all brutally executed and tortured, not recanting, not a single one of them. They all went to their grave and were executed, believing that Jesus had risen from the dead. And then you fast forward to today. And 2,000 years later, this, 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 this message of the resurrection has spread all across the globe. And millions of people today are celebrating the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, so my explanation for how all of that happened is that Jesus rose from the dead. What's your explanation? What, how else can you explain all of that? How else can you explain the transformation that's happened even in my life? Listen to my testimony. Here, if you don't have an explanation, here's the top five. You pretty much have to pick one of them. The first one is this, that they crucified the wrong guy. So our our Muslim uh, friends and neighbors, uh, co-workers, fellow classmates, uh, they believe that there was a divinely created doppelganger, someone who looked like Jesus, and at the last minute, there was like a prince and pauper switch, and Jesus ascended into heaven, and someone who just looked like Jesus died on the cross. So that's one option. The other option is that he only fainted on the cross. 
and that it wasn't a resurrection, it was just like a resuscitation, that the scourging and the whipping and the beating and then the hanging on the cross for six hours and all the blood loss and then being stabbed in the side, it was sort of like Princess Bride, he was only mostly dead. And that although he was in a tomb for three days with very little oxygen, he managed to resuscitate and then rolled the stone away himself, tiptoed past all of the guards, and then walked 10 kilometers from Jerusalem to Emmaus. That's an option too. The third option is that the women just went to the wrong tomb, right? I mean, if it, was, if it were men navigating, maybe, but I'm pretty sure the women would have found it. And if that, were the, if that were the issue, then the religious leaders of the Romans would have been like, sorry, wrong tomb. See, it's this one. But they never, they never did that. The other option is that the disciples were delusional. But here's the thing. Hallucination is not a team sport. If I have a hallucination that there's a purple polka-dotted hippopotamus floating around the room playing badminton with a giraffe, that's only me that's seeing that. We can't collectively hallucinate. And then the last option, which is the, you know, the oldest one in the book, it literally is the oldest and it actually is in the book, is the body snatcher disciples option. That the disciples decided to steal the body. But the, the thing that they're told to say in verse 13 is disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. Now this is kind of like, you know, the, the, the kid in Sunday school that says, Susie opened her eyes during prayer. And then you're like, how do you know Susie opened her eyes during prayer? <laughs> if you were all sleeping... How did you know it was the disciples who did it? And if they had done it, grave robbing is a crime. So arrest the disciples for committing a crime and have them produce the body. But if you're looking for Jesus, you're not going to find him in a tomb. The most plausible, reasonable explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And, and really, at the end of the day, I mean, we, we can chuckle at these alternatives, but the reason why people believe these alternatives is they don't want him to be alive. They can play the Beatles record backwards all they want. But he's alive. Even, even a guy like Reza Aslan, who's, who's written, he's written a book about Jesus. He's sort of a, a religious authority. Uh, he's dabbled in Christianity and Islam. He's, he, uh, he calls himself a Muslim now. Uh, he says, one could simply dismiss the resurrection as a lie and declare belief in the risen Jesus to be the product of a deludable mind. I really appreciate his honesty here. However, there is this nagging fact to consider one after another, those who claimed to have witnessed the risen Jesus went to their own gruesome deaths, refusing to recount their testimony. Jesus claimed to be God. If he wasn't God, he could have got out of the cross. But he believed that he was God. And he was God. 
and the disciples saw him resurrected. If they had just admitted if, that they had lied, then they would have got out of being tortured and burned and crucified themselves. But they didn't. Would all of them really die for a lie like that? The most plausible, reasonable explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So we've taken another crack at exploring the evidence. And then lastly, I want us to take one more look at the Savior. Verse 16 says, Now when the eleven disciples went to Galilee, the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Again, he's receiving worship. Either they're all breaking the first commandment or Jesus is God. It says some doubted. Some were still trying to figure it all out. Maybe you're here today, you're still trying to figure everything out. You're still welcome. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's four all statements that Jesus makes. He has all authority. He has authority over all nations. That we're to obey all that he has commanded and that he is always with us. That whole all authority thing, that is the main reason why people are trying everything they can do to somehow prove that Jesus died and stayed dead. Because if Jesus is indeed alive, the implications are pretty significant, a lot more significant than if Paul McCartney is alive. Because Jesus, if he's, if he's risen from the dead, then all authority does belong. He is truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that means that we have to do what letter C says, that we have to obey all that he's commanded. And it's not a suggestion like, hey, maybe you should believe in me. No, no, he commands that people believe in him because he has that authority. And people don't want to follow Jesus. They don't want to follow his, his word about generosity and charity and caring for the poor and loving your neighbor as yourself, putting other people's needs before yours. People don't want to follow Jesus' view on sexual ethics or identity. People don't want to, want to follow these things. And so they don't want Jesus to have authority. So they say, well, Jesus is dead. And he, he has authority over all nations. He says, go make disciples of all nations. Jesus isn't, isn't just a, a God of, of, of white Europeans. The, the, this message of the cross has, has spread across the globe. People of every tribe and tongue and language and ethnicity and background. That he's a savior for everyone. And then he says, surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, this is, this is something that you really need to pay attention to when you think about the testimony of his followers. Like, maybe you're here today and you're like, I'm not sure if I believe in the resurrection. I don't even know what I believe. I've become so, like, so many of us have become so jaded and so cynical because we've been so let down by, by government, by media, by, by cultural elites, by celebrities, by, by politicians. And we're just like, I don't, I don't even know what's going on. Like I don't even know what kind of a world I live in anymore. 
Have you noticed how thin our skin has become? You read about previous generations and how thick their skin was, how tough people were, what they put up with. And we just run from any sort of discomfort. Why is that? Well, it's because we have a whole generation that's been brought up on the idea that all of this is an accident and there is no God and you're all just on your own. But that, that root, when you really stop and think about that, that that's, this is all there is? Like we're, we're, no, we're literally no different from dogs and cats or, or chimpanzees or mosquitoes? Like we're, we're all just part of this process and it all means nothing? No wonder there's so many people who are filled with despair in our world. No wonder people are so filled with anxiety in our world. Because they have no concept that there is a God who loves them and who has promised to be with them always. And if there's any other secondary lesson about the cross, other than the fact that it it was a ransom to set us free from our sin and to make things right between us and God, if there's any secondary lesson, it's that there can be a purpose in suffering. Why do we run from suffering and discomfort in our world? Because we think there's no purpose in it. If there's no purpose in life, then there can't be any purpose in my suffering, so I need to do whatever I can to insulate myself from anything hard or difficult in my life. But talk to the Christians that you know. And listen, we're not one of those best life now kind of churches. We're not saying that everything becomes easier when you become a fall. Listen, there are people in this room who have suffered and are suffering right now immensely. But they know that there is a Savior who is with them. Always. And then Jesus said, with you always, even to the end of the age. That this isn't Just some accidental process. All of this is heading somewhere. As Jesus said when he was on trial, the Son of Man is going to appear with power in the clouds. And he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And whatever we went through, whatever struggle we have, whatever hardship, we're going to see that there was a purpose in all of it. And you can know that today. When I was six years old, I went to a summer camp about three hours north of here. And this was a Christian summer camp. And I, 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 started, I started listening to the testimony. There were these high school students and these university students who were volunteering at the camp. And they were telling me about Jesus. They were telling me the Bible stories. They were telling me how their own life had been changed by Jesus. I was listening to the testimony. And then, like, I'm, I'm up north and I'm examining the evidence. I mean, I grew up in Hamilton. I had never seen the stars in the sky. Like, it was smokestacks and steel factories everywhere. And I go to this beautiful paradise of a place. And I see the sky full of stars. And I see the water. And I see the trees. And I see this is not an accident. There is a God. He is real. And then as I kept listening to the testimony as the week progressed, I began to see the Savior. I didn't see him perfectly clearly at six years old. My theology, you know, was still being developed. 
But I, I met Jesus that week. And I knew, even from a six-year-old perspective, that I had sinned. That when I really wanted things my way and I lied to get my way or I stole something to get my way or I was mean to someone else because I thought it would make me happy or if I did something selfish, I knew what sin was. And I heard that Jesus had died for my sin and that God loved me and wanted to be with me forever. And so I committed my life to Jesus. And you can do that today too. Listen to the testimony, explore the evidence, and see the Savior. Maybe you have done that. Then just be reminded that we are continually going through this process of listening to the testimony, exploring the evidence, and seeing the Savior. I became a Christian when I was six years old, at a summer camp, wasn't really a disciple, had all kinds of ups and downs on my spiritual journey, falling into sin, experiencing victory. But I started listening to the testimony. I started reading the Bible when I was about 14 or 15 years old. And then I went off to university, and man, I got challenged. You think the science department is hard. The, the, the history department, the humanities department, man, they're ready to chew you up and spit you out with Foucault and a whole bunch of other French guys in turtlenecks. <laughs> so I had to really explore the Do I believe and do I have a philosophical basis to believe in the existence of God? Do I have a historical reason for believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? So I really had to examine the evidence, which led me to really continue to listen to the testimony. And time and time again, I would continually see the Savior. You see, the truth of the gospel, it's like this great river that you can, like the, the small and the weak, the six-year-olds, they can wade into the river. And the strong and the mature, they, they can go right in deep and just plumb the depths. And so wherever you are right now, I just encourage you, whether you're not a believer and trying to make sense of all that's happening in this world or just trying to get your neighbor off your back who keeps inviting you to church, or whether you're someone who's been a follower of Jesus for decades, I encourage you, listen to the testimony. Listen to the testimony of other believers Explore the evidence and you will see the Savior. So I'm going to invite the, uh, the music team and the choir to come, uh, to come back up now. And I, I'm just going to pray for us and pray that God would uh, move in our hearts. We're so thankful that you chose to join, join us here on Resurrection Sunday. And maybe you've never prayed before. Uh, maybe you've already prayed three times today. Regardless, let's, uh, let's pray together. Let's bow our heads to allow us to focus on God. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for all that it symbolizes. Thank you that on the first day of the week, 2,000 years ago, the two Marys went to the tomb looking for Jesus, but he was not there because he was he has risen, as he said. God, I pray for those of us who are already a part of your family who even though we've sinned against you, have been welcomed in as brothers and sisters. God, I pray that you would help us to go deeper and deeper as we listen to the testimony and explore the evidence. And, and I pray that you would help us to see you. And God, I pray for those who are here today, and they don't even know really why they're here. But God, if you're beginning to speak to them, if, if you're answering the prayer that I began, uh, the, the, uh, the, the message, 
the prayer that this would not simply be someone talking about God, but that God's speaking through someone. God, I, I pray now that this would be our time to talk back to you, to confess to you that we're sinners, to, ad, to admit to you that we have sinned against your law. We've tried, we've thought that there was freedom in doing things our own way, and it's led only to slavery. To admit to you that we've sinned, and then to believe that Jesus, when you died, you died as a ransom. You died to bear our iniquities and our sin, that our sin was put on you on the cross and that you rose from the dead. And that we want to commit, recognize that you have all authority and that we, we want to obey all that you've commanded and we want to spread your message to all nations and we want to trust that you are with us. God, thank you that you have not left us on our own in this world, but that you have promised to be with us even to the end of the age. God, we thank you that our sin was put on Christ and now all glory and honor and praise should be put on him as well. Thank you that he lives. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.